This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho, and you should have heard the argument Stephen and I had for the last hour. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Stephen Caradini, and we did have a rollicking argument for the last eh, 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. So you're going to have a pretty well-developed episode because we've been arguing about it this episode is about something a little bigger of a deal than apple yes i know dear listeners there is something in the world that is a bigger deal than a tech company (laughs) we're going to talk about nuclear weapons yeah and nuclear waste but mostly nuclear weapons and the reason we're going to talk about nuclear weapons is because in our last episode we talked about how to discuss and think about the rejection of technologies. Right. And so now we're going to talk about the rejection of technologies that some people think are good and some people think are not good. Right. Whereas last week we talked about something people thought was all bad. <laughs> yeah. One of the big differences is we talked a lot about snap judgments and how you form people to have like, – how you as a person form yourself to have good and right snap judgments to be able to think quickly and rightly, and then to be able to interrogate your snap judgments and revise them and evaluate them. The subject for today, as being the kind of big deal it is, and that's perhaps the one of the largest understatements I've ever made on Winning Slowly, and I've made some good yeah. ones over the years. Yeah. It's a fairly important thing. Nuclear weapons have been involved in some of the most horrific losses of life in human history in kind of single moments in time. They're not alone in that category. There were other parts of World War II that fit in that bucket, some of the the massive firebombing. Yeah. And certainly the Holocaust, though that was on, quote-unquote, the other side and stretched over a much longer time. Nonetheless, nuclear weapons are really serious, and they are not not something we can make light of. Now, we're not going to be spending most of this time talking about the actual content of ethics on nuclear weapons. It's a difficult, long subject. We could probably take a season worth of tracing out just war and nuclear weapons and things like that. And who knows, maybe winning slowly season 22 will do just that. But the focus for today is to say, this is a technology that was developed, that was deployed in the service of war, and that then served as the constant backdrop to war, uh, both active and potential for the following 50 years-ish. And that continues to be an important part of geopolitics in our world today. And all weapons, fundamentally, are a kind of technology. And over the course of the 20th century, a number of weapons have been developed. And this kind of thing isn't new, but the scale is new and therefore does warrant new degrees of ethical reflection and response. What do you do when a horror of a technology is developed? And Whatever you think about the appropriateness of the times when nuclear weapons have been deployed, and whatever Stephen and my conclusion is on whether they should ever be deployed again, it is unarguable, we think, that they are a horror, that they are a kind of weapon that is horrific in in nearly every imaginable way. They cause massive loss of life in the moment and massive degradation to human life in the area where they've been deployed afterward for a very long time. To say nothing of the long-term effects on the environment and on the urban areas and on the wildlife and on the natural resources that affect far greater areas, et cetera, et cetera. They have 
massive, yeah. long, somewhat intractable because they're based on half-lives. It's not something you can speed up um, right. without physically going and removing it. So there's massive, long effects that happen anytime a nuclear bomb is deployed, whether that's a test site or not, whether that's in live combat or not. And the the fallout from that, and I, I don't mean that as a pun, though there's a reason that that phrase has entered our language. The fallout from all of that is horrific. And so as a technology, nuclear weaponry is horrific in the very strict sense of the word. So what do people do as communities to respond to horrific technologies? What can people do to respond to horrific technologies? So it's well known that many of the Manhattan Project workers, scientists, the people who developed the technology that undergirds the concept of the atomic bomb, even if current instantiations of atomic weaponry are slightly different, many of them denounced their own creations by the end of the war and in the years after the war. Uh, Particularly Oppenheimer, who was the head of the program, has one famous and other quotes about how the technology that he had created uh, was horrible. So the people who worked on this, even as they were doing it in a dire need, as a huge war engulfed significant chunks of the entire world, even they felt that this was a very bad thing. And the ways that that played out after the war are what we're particularly interested in in Mm -hmm. this episode. What are the contours of the discussion surrounding nuclear weapons? So with the stage of seriousness set, the the things that happened afterwards were more in line with the sorts of uh, standard politics, which I'll talk about in a minute, and activism and uh, people choosing to reject things that we would expect in sort of normative ways of doing politics. So standard politics, I mean, people say, we don't like this thing. And the politician that represents them says, my people don't like this thing and votes against whatever this thing is. And activism being that sort of intermediary between the people and what they think, uh, either as an intermediary to change what people think or an intermediary between the people and uh, the the politicians. So we are giving these people our message, and then those people will take the message to the politicians. And then the, the standard process of people talking to each other and saying, wow, that would be really bad if we used nuclear weapons. We shouldn't do that. All those processes working together are sort of the normal realm of how we perceive politics or change in general. So partially... That's what happened with nuclear weapons, but not entirely because we still have nuclear weapons and we still have situations today where nuclear weapons are used both as the threat of a actual attack as well as geopolitical bargaining. So even though there are good ways of rejecting technologies, for instance, there have been no uh, nuclear weapons used in active combat uh, since 1945, the process of continuing to reject this technology is ongoing. It is not something like Google Glass where people rejected it and Google's like, well, 
That was not good. Right. We should not bring that one back to market. So it's a different process than what we talked about in the first episode on this. That's what I'm getting at. And one of the things that's very different there is insofar as our rejection of this technology has actually happened, it has been partial and halting and incomplete because there has been something of a cultural rejection of the technology in some ways, in some parts of American culture. But it is not as though that actually prevented the ongoing rapid proliferation of nuclear weapons, the development of increasingly sophisticated and powerful nuclear weapons during the Cold War. The the years in which protests were loudest about nuclear weaponry were also the years in which nuclear weaponry was being developed most aggressively by both of the major superpowers and by quite a few others as well. And insofar as the sort of post-Cold War era has involved nuclear weapons as a concern, and it has, that has been in the interest of preventing further proliferation, etc. But what this shows is that this rejection was partial, incomplete, but nonetheless somewhat pervasive. It is the case that all of the major powers who acquired nuclear weapons in the early parts of the post-war era, quote-unquote, the era after World War II, very quickly came to the realization that further proliferation would be bad. Now, there were some purely self-interest elements of that. It's, of course, in the interests of the great powers that they just be the only ones with these things. It allows them to persuade or perhaps more accurately bully and bludgeon smaller powers into doing what they want because they simply have a stick that no one else does. But it is also the case that the shift in cultural discussion, at least in Western countries around these things, contributed to a recognition that proliferation of nuclear weapons and the further deployment of nuclear weapons would be bad. Yet at the same time, we continued to develop them. We continued to engage in this policy and process of geopolitics with mutually assured destruction as the backdrop for it. And you can argue, many people have, that the reason that nuclear weapons have not been deployed again is because of this idea of mutually assured destruction, that if one party did it, another would. In the backdrop of the 20th century as a whole, this is an open question because this is not the only horrific technology that was developed and deployed in the 20th century. Many of the post-World War I accords similarly looked at newly deployed technologies like mustard gas and said, we're not doing that again. And not merely for the fear of retribution, but because all the parties involved said, this was a horror and we do not want to repeat it. It is interesting to note that that is not how the conversation about nuclear weapons played out. The bigger question is, how is it that we can have had in many ways, a loud rejection of this technology by large parts of the population, and yet its continued development at a governmental level? And to what extent did that loud rejection by a wide swath of the population, again, at least in the West, impact the way the technology has been developed, accepted, rejected, etc.? So there's roughly nine countries that have nuclear warheads saying roughly because North Korea is theoretically one of those countries and there are potentially other countries that are places like Iran that may or may not have them. So there are – these countries are the US, Russia, UK, France, China, India, Pakistan, 
Israel and North Korea. I'll link an article that, that points this out. And as Chris noted, the tensions between each of these countries point towards mutual assured destruction. So if you shoot a missile at me, I'll shoot a missile at you and we'll all die. But the 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 quirk and and what we're trying to to push at a little bit in sort of different ways, which is it's kind of hard to get at, which is why we're doing it this way is the the fact that all these countries have lots of nuclear missiles and the fact that these nuclear missiles have not been used means that in some way this technology up until now has been rejected mm-hmm. but it's also not rejected <laughs> so it's it's in the process of not being used so you can say over the last 73 years it has been rejected as an option in that it has not been used but it is not gone it is there there are full denuclearization has not occurred right so there's a situation here where when we say how to reject technology part of it is just keep doing it keep resisting keep fighting against the types of policies the types of uh, ways of thinking and talking that would result in justification of the use of nuclear weapons in another sense you can argue that resisting nuclear technology has failed in that there are thousands of these things out in the world and so thinking about what it means to argue and what goals and ends that each of these arguments have is important because again if you're looking strictly at have we used nukes not since 1945 this seems like a really successful resistance of a technology but it's not complete and so a comparison of this rejection in a similar vein is nuclear waste which America is struggling to deal with from the nuclear plants that it has. And I'll link a long explainer about the Yucca Mountain situation. The gist of the argument is that the national government wants to put nuclear waste in a specific consolidated place, and that specific consolidated place being in Nevada. Nevadans don't want that to happen, and so they're has been a 30-plus year stalemate over nuclear waste because these particular people in Nevada and environmentalists in other states and uh, people who are invested in other ways in the issue have said, no, we're going to keep blocking this. And so on the other end of the spectrum, Congress just put in their 2019 uh, appropriation bills, money to restart, restart the project. So again, 30 years of rejection. It doesn't exist. It's not happening. There is no consolidated storehouse of nuclear waste in Nevada, but it continues to go on. And this is troubling in some ways that our argument here is partially that you can never stop resisting right. some technologies, that they are in some ways pervasive if the box has been opened, it is hard or impossible to shut, right. as we have mentioned before. But in other ways, it shows that you can continue to resist for a long time and stop something from happening. One of the things that's interesting about that, and the the way in which these two related 
topics fold into each other is that they've not been just one wing of political life, cultural life in the country playing out. It's not been as though there has just been a cabal of experts who've said, we're doing this thing or we're not doing this thing. Rather, as we alluded to a few minutes ago, in the debates that followed on after the Manhattan Project concluded, it was both elites and experts and also popular level protest that were major parts of ongoing discourse about nuclear weapons and their ethical or unethical nature. And likewise, there's a lot of discussion in that 30-year history of the Yucca Mountain Project, longer longer than that. It literally predates either Stevens or my birth. We're not that young anymore. (laughs) It's been going for a while. Yeah. And there as well, the back and forth has not merely been some sort of populist groundswell or some sort of bunch of elites doing what they want. Rather, it's been a very complex back and forth of these elites in this place and those populists in that place agreeing at times and disagreeing at times and forming alliances and not at other times. And and there's also scientists and experts involved, not just politicians. Right, exactly. There's a lot of different constituents. There's a lot of different groups that are involved. And if it sounds like we're describing politics, we kind of are. That's, that's kind of how this works. Now, there are certain elements that we are arguing for in normal politics Mm -hmm. that don't necessarily get played out the way we would expect them to, which is partially why we've ended up where we have in other types of political situations, which is in Nevada, the Congress people of Nevada have responded to the large uproar and said, okay, we're going to say no to nuclear waste in Nevada. That is not always the case when there's lockstep party issues and things of this nature that go against the the issues that people on the ground see. So we're describing normal politics as a way to slightly indict abnormal politics that we would describe that happen now, but also as a way to think about the process of doing politics, of creating ideas and opinions in groups together with multiple types of people who may or may not at the beginning think the same thing and at the end can be aligned in some sort of formation that will allow them to collaboratively do something. In this Mm -hmm. case, collaboratively reject nuclear technologies. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can think about how this process of creating forward motion out of two or three or four or more disparate ideas on a subject. And one of them is um, in uh, a book that I'll link called Acting in an Uncertain World uh, by uh, Cologne, Lascombs, and Bart. Uh, Apologies to uh, whoever I mispronounced their name on that one. But it's the idea of hybrid forums where you get lay people and experts together to work out issues on a particular concept and to then put forward ideas that can then be forwarded into policies and other actions. And the goal of these hybrid forums is to get people who have the vested interest, the boots on the ground people, meeting with experts who have the knowledge of whatever this technology or thing is, this concept, whatever it is, 
and have them hash things out and figure out what's a way forward in this situation. And that relies heavily on lay people being able to understand the experts, which thankfully, when experts try to explain things to lay people, particularly when the lay people are very interested in what's happening in that situation, they can generally muddle through. We can generally have a conversation. This is what this book is arguing for. As much as people are dumb sometimes, people are actually really smart too. Yeah, they can be real smart when it comes to something that's actively happening in their literal or metaphorical backyard, as is with the case of nuclear waste and things of this nature. So the the hybrid forum is one way of doing this sort of thing. You get people in a room and you say, hey, what do you think about this thing? We know we disagree, but why do you disagree? Well, I disagree because I feel like this could have serious detrimental health effects for me and my family. Okay, well, here's some evidence that says that this won't. Um, and then this other person says, well, I feel like you're just saying that because you really want this thing to happen. I don't trust that as an argument. And so then the other person has to have a different argument or have different evidence or explain why this sort of evidence is valid. Um, and if it's not perceived as valid, then you have to address what is not valid about this. Is it not valid because it comes from me? Is it not valid because it comes up with a solution that you don't like? Right. This sort of thing. You have to have these long negotiations of information to actually figure out what's going on, and then you can find a way forward. Right. Persuasion, and even for that matter, good argument, even if you don't, even if neither party ultimately changes their mind, ultimately depends on our ability to get somewhat past the surface level. And this is one of the reasons that much of the popular level of news is very unhelpful and has been for a very long time. This is not new to cable TV. Yellow journalism from the early 1900s had many of the same problems. Yeah, I mean, for, at a basic level, journalism is not intended to do this sort <laughs> right. of long, deep, invested sorts of investigation, collaborative action. Right. Now, the in the very best situations, it can do that. Right. It can. But, but most journalism isn't, isn't the context in which this kind of thing happens. Yeah, it's not. And it doesn't necessarily encourage it. But shout out to the Pacific Coast Warning System. <laughs> <laughs> that was an incredible article. We'll link yeah. it. The thing that we must do, even if we are simply to actually correctly understand each other's arguments, is understand what it is that would make me agree with you. What what would so so we know that I think A and you think Q, but but why? Why do I think A and you think Q and these things are in opposition to each other? And a lot of the work of arguing well and therefore of persuading, if we are to persuade one another, is doing the work of saying, what is the thing that makes me think A, that if I changed my mind on that, would make me think Q instead? What is the crux, therefore, of, of the disagreement between me and you? And likewise, if at all possible, because sometimes these aren't the same, perhaps often they aren't the same, what is the thing that makes you think Q that if you changed your mind would make you think A instead? This particular formulation that I just gave came out of some of the rationalist community. Stephen and I have some good things to say about that community and lots of disagreements with them, kind of like we do with every other community we can point to on the interwebs. Yeah. But this particular formulation is a nice way of capturing some of the work that you have to do and some of the work that these movements have at times, at their best, done. Exposed, why is it that you think that putting nuclear waste under Yucca Mountain would be bad. What would change your mind about that? 
on the original issue we brought up. What makes you think that the use of nuclear weapons is justified at times? What could change your mind to make you think that, no, it's actually never justified? And those reasons can be complicated. In the case of nuclear weapon deployment, for example, I know from experience of talking to people about it that for a lot of people, the biggest stumbling block to saying that nuclear weapons should never be deployed is that that would admit, because it entails, the idea that America did something really wrong when we deployed them. And that kind of emotional thing is not nothing. It's it's really significant, actually. And being able even to identify that, being able to identify it in yourself, if you're the person yeah. who holds that stance, it's hard to get there. I know that from having been on the losing side of arguments where I realized, oh, yeah. oh, I believe this for reasons that actually don't hold up. Now I have to change my mind. And being willing to change your mind is really hard. Right. And it's always complicated by multiple factors. Mm-hmm. So even if America did a horrible thing, it stopped something that was itself a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Which was more horrible. Was it justified, even given its horror? Right. And then the alternative would have been an invasion of Japan, and that seems like that would have been a horrible thing. Right. Balancing horrors becomes difficult. Uh, but it's necessary when you start talking about like justifications of of use of force and right. use of maximum force and things of this nature, which is not to say that America was or was not correct in that situation, uh, but is to say that doing that sort of external investigation, finding out what other people actually think about that situation, and internal investigation, thinking about what you actually think at the mm-hmm. deep core of that opinion is a necessary sort of thing that you need to do before you can have these sorts of conversations. Some of that actually works out in these conversations. Some of that has to be done with other people, but there has to be a base level of self-investigation before you can even go into these sorts of forums, lest it turn into a shouting match. And that's part (laughs) of the problem that we have with Twitter and cable news and these sorts of things is that the goal of the conversation is often not to get to truth right. or to investigate the way forward, but to win. And winning, both in a hybrid forum sort of sense and in a any sort of collective forward-going motivated action, winning is not always the best thing for forward action. Sometimes you don't need to win, and if you take it it being the whole conversation, outside of the realm of winning and losing, you can start to have different types of discussions and different types of arguments because you're no longer saying, I want my point to win. You're saying, I want to go forward on this issue. Now, it takes a very specific situation for people to suddenly or not suddenly say, I don't care what we do. We need to push this forward. And and one of the challenges there is that sometimes you cannot say, I don't care what we That's do. That's true. Because if you're persuaded that this thing in front of you is a grave moral evil, whether that's slavery or abortion or genocide or the deployment of nuclear weapons to go to today's topic, you can't just give that thing up because you do see it as a grave moral evil. But you may at times have to define the definition of winning, of accomplishing your goal here, as not just being... I got everybody on the same page today, but I made progress in people understanding why I think this thing is a grave moral evil. When Wilberforce fought slavery for decades, 
one of the things he had to do was be okay with that being a slow process. He was never not persuaded that it was a grave moral evil, right. but he did the work over decades and decades of having these arguments with people. And I mean, argument in the positive sense here of slow attempt to expose truth. And ultimately you have to be working for truth together. And so sometimes in the conversation, you come out of the conversation having quote unquote one, not by having persuaded someone, but by having gotten a little closer to truth together of having dug at each other's reasons for thinking things well. What I meant by I don't care what we do is the idea of moving forward together. Right. So I acknowledging that this is a bad thing or that there's an intractable situation in front of us, moving forward in the what I meant by I don't care what we do is I don't care what motions we make forward. We where forward is attempting to understand each other's opinions and trying to synthesize them or compromise or develop a third way or whatever it is. But the whole idea of doing something forward means that you've gone beyond winning and losing. You you can't go forward if both of you leave and say like, well, I still believe this thing is true and they still believe this other thing is true and nothing happened. Now, that doesn't mean to completely compromise your position because that's why there's an intractable position at the at that specific moment. What going forward means is understanding what each other are saying and attempting and sometimes succeeding in changing the discourse, changing the ways that people are formulating their opinions, changing the ways that people are discussing things so that the possibility for new whatever, new ideas, some of which you may not like and some of which you may like, is open. And this is how uh, in times of significant change, things have happened. Something has changed in the situation that allows new things to occur. This is how the Berlin Wall fell. Things had changed in that situation. And so moving forward does not mean that you abandon all of your principles and say, (laughs) I don't care, we're just going to get something done here. But it's moving the situation forward in a way that allows something new to happen. And hopefully... In, in the sense of something new being something that's good and true and right and in line with your ethics right. and in line with the other people's ethics. And right. sometimes, as Chris said, that takes decades. Right. Because sometimes somebody's ethics have to give. And, well, yes, but like, the whole— the, the slavery example is the thing. Somebody's mind had to change. A lot of somebody's minds had to change. In the American South, a lot of very, very wicked Christians— <laughs> had to have their minds changed and their Christian brothers and sisters in the North were shouting at them. And so sometimes it happens within quote unquote ethical frame. Our ethical right. systems have to move, but a lot of people had to be persuaded that their very dearly held beliefs that slavery was a good ordained by God was wrong. That That's true. But a lot of them weren't convinced through ethical discussions of the type that we're talking about. It's true. And that's one most of the things of, that gets most hard. of them weren't <laughs> right. My my argument there is that that's a bad example. <laughs> that's not a good example. Which is why of, I brought up the Wilberforce example. Which is a much better example. And this is one of the challenges here. There are times, World War II is another example, however morally complicated it was, and it was. Nonetheless, 
Hitler and the Holocaust had to be stopped. There was a point when talk ended, and there's a there's a difficulty there in discerning those times. The vast majority of them aren't that. The vast majority of them progress is in exactly the way Stephen was just outlining. It is in the mutual seeking of truth and good and goodwill together. And 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 this does <laughs> this does point out a specific problem that I just mentioned, which is what if somebody doesn't want to seek truth with you? Right. And that's a significant problem, and that's part of how we've gotten to the coarsened political discourse that we have today is that a lot of people, both lay and politicians, are not interested in seeking truth with one another, right. even to the point that they're not interested in talking to one another. And to that end, our admonishment is maybe you should <laughs> talk to one another. Yes. Talking is not the solution to all ills, but you dang well better start there. Yeah, that's a place where you need to start. And also, the the ways that things can be achieved is much easier if everyone is at the table. It is totally possible to achieve things without people being at the table, but those aren't very good and long-lasting sorts of change. Right. And they may even be just shallow, papered-over change. So is it hard to do all of these things that we're suggesting? It is super hard. It is not easy. This is one of those episodes where it's like, ethics, fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> kind of but, the opposite at times. Yeah. And, but it is necessary, but and it, it is. is the kind of thing that we can only do when we are willing, at least for our own part. As Stephen noted, you can't make another party in an argument do that. But you yourself always can and always should seek truth. And I have found in arguments myself growing in my own understanding of truth, even when the other person was unwilling to, if I was trying to understand them. And that's a really frustrating conversation to have, let me tell you, but it can nonetheless be good. And there can nonetheless be the kind of progress that Stephen was talking about, even right. in those. And they're they're hard, but they can be good. And we also commend that this is not the same as empathy. We did an episode on the limits of empathy, and this is a different sort of situation. Sometimes you need to start with empathy, but that's not where you need to end up when you're having these sorts of discussions. So go work hard at ethics. Woo! Yay! <laughs> Thank you for listening to this very uplifting episode of Winning Slowly. The music at the beginning of the episode was Assembling the Fleet by Andreas Waldentoft from the Stellaris expansions. We're I'm, both really excited about this. As, as excited as Steven was about having teen days, I'm that excited about this. It was really rad. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to Andreas Waldentoft for letting us use this. Again, I'm so excited. And people, <laughs> go buy this album, listen to it, stream it, find it, support it. It's pretty great. This is some of my favorite working music. Has been for a couple of years now. There you go. Thanks to this month's sponsors, Andrew Fallows and Kurt Klassen, for keeping on, keeping on, supporting us, even when we are erratic and not timely. We're working on it. I mean, we're always working on it. it <laughs> Hopefully does keep we'll be the, getting better at it. It does keep the podcast going. It's like true. The podcast will keep going because we're. it's hard to get burned out when you're like, ah, oh, let's just put a month between episodes. We didn't do that on purpose, we promise. That's not what we said. But, I mean, <laughs> it still it still works. Like, it's you true. don't burn out when you've only recorded once a month. If you, like Andrew and Kurt, want to be a total boss and a champ, you can sponsor us via 
ongoing contributions at patreon.com slash winning slowly or the good old one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly you can follow us on twitter at winning slowly at chris Kreicho, at scaradini you can email us at hello at winning slowly.org and as always thank you for listening We keep saying last week, but it's been like a while. Yeah, it's just last week. It was just last week. Just last week, people, totally. Uh, Thank you so much to letting us use it. Dear people out there, go buy this album. You can get it anywhere you can buy music. And don't use it without permission. Get permission, people. Gosh. You should say that again because you forgot to say thank you to Andreas Waldentoft. You just said thank you to... (laughs) 